And Father, I pray that we would understand the magnitude of what we just sang, that God is with us, Lord. You're with us every waking and sleeping moment, but how much more so as we come to a higher awareness of your presence as we open your word, as we gather together, as we study, as we seek to be more like you. And so, Father, once again, we just pray as we're on the cusp of a new year that you would bless us. But I pray, Father, just as strongly that we would be a blessing unto you, that, Father, we would speak of the great things that you have done. And so prepare us for that purpose even today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you turn to your neighbor and tell him, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. (laughs) I try to break it up a little bit. (laughs) Morning. Good morning. Good morning, Jim. How are you? Well, after multiple Christmas and New Year's and prophecy messages, go ahead and turn to your Bible in 1 Peter chapter 3 as we continue verse by verse through the epistle of 1 Peter. We'll be starting at verse 8, and as always, if you arrived here today without a Bible, we'd like for you to follow along, and there should be one in front of you underneath the seat, but if there isn't, if you'll raise your hands, the ushers will bring one to you. Anybody need a Bible? Okay, turn it to 1 Peter chapter 3, starting at verse 8. Go ahead and stand for the reading of God's Word. Peter writes, verse 8, Finally, all of you, that's all of us, be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And so, Father, I pray that we would truly have this desire to honor you today and that your face would shine upon us. And so, God, I pray once again, teach us and instruct us, bless us with the knowledge of your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Well, we just passed that time of the year when people make resolutions. A resolution is usually an empty promise of personal betterment that you fail in the first week. But nonetheless, we continue to make them because we have hope in what we're able to do. That's why we fail. But we also are to have hope in what God is able to do. And so what's your spiritual New Year's resolution? I've encouraged you, I pray that you do, is to read through the Bible in a year. Even online, the one-year Bible online, for free, you can read through the Bible in one year. It takes, what, 10 minutes every morning, evening, whenever it is that you get into the Word. But my point here is, is to mature in your Christian life, to make the decision, Lord, this year is going to be the year that I push forward in what you desire out of me and who you desire for me to be. Matter of fact, I looked it up. 
we started in May of 2007 to go back through the epistles. We had gone through the epistles, the letters after the gospels um, before that, but I made the determination that we were going to march through, and that's what we're in the process of doing. We've come to First Peter. But going through the epistles, because the thing about the epistles are the rich instruction to the body of Christ, to the church. They contained what is necessary for us to be honorable in the sight of God. This, the things we talk about, is who a born-again believer is to be. And what's God's purpose in all of this? God's purpose is to mature you, to raise you up in the knowledge of who Jesus Christ is, and as I said earlier, to become more and more like him. How do I know when I am becoming more mature? Well, there's a delicate balance because I pointed it out in our study in Hebrews. Everybody here, everybody here is doing one of two things. You're either pushing forward in your Christian life, you're either maturing in your Christian life, or you're backsliding. And there really is no in-between. Isn't that kind of strong, Pastor? Backsliding? Well, we're not to stay stagnant. We are to reach forward in the higher calling in Christ Jesus. If you're not reaching forward in the higher calling in Christ Jesus, then you're, you're backsliding. How do I know if that's the case? Well, what were you doing a year ago? What were you doing two years ago? Have you pulled back from that? Are you just as passionate about the Lord and the things of the Lord and building your Christian life? Matter of fact, the Bible tells us the outward sign of maturity is is that you should be prepared. Every Bible study you sit in is to teach God's word, to share it out to the unbeliever, but also to be able to encourage and train up the believer. We're told in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12, because the writer of Hebrews was beside himself realizing that these people, they're not growing in the gospel. He says, for though by this time... You ought to be teachers, but he says, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles or the word of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use, who have put these things to use, who have done these things, Jesus said, blessed are you if you do these things, by reasons of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. And so it's God's desire that we would be saved, but it's also God's desire that it wouldn't end there. But that would be a glorious beginning for really all of eternity, that we would march forward in our Christian lives, and we would be people who would sit and study, that we would hear God's word, but again, we would do God's word. We would take these things and bring them into a children's ministry classroom, a small group, into your homes, training up your spouses and your children, and and have these things be an integral part of our life. Another new year is upon us. What's it going to be? Is it going to be the same old thing, or have you made a determination for a change? Because there's beauty in Christian maturity. There's beauty, and as a pastor, I get a little bit better perspective. I see people's growth in the Lord, and it's a great thing. I remember my children, the day that they were born. There was excitement. There was excitement to see these new lives, just as we see people when they come to the saving knowledge, the saving understanding of Jesus Christ. They're toddlers. They learn to, to walk, and they learn to feed themselves, and, and just to do those elementary things and to see those stages of development. Then they became teenagers, and you thought, oh no, what did I get myself into? 
But you saw, you remembered the things that you went through when, when you were those age, that age, and, and as they're experiencing new things for the very first time, they get jobs, and that's a real blessing. They're able to support themselves to some degree. And then they get married, and they move on, and then they have grandchildren, and that's good, and that's what God has intended for them to do. And as you see these things coming to pass in their lives, there's a joy to be able to witness that. Well, bring that into the body of Christ to see somebody, again, coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, to see the light turn on when they hear the Word of God, but then to see them be excited about it and, and feed on the milk, the basic things of the gospel and the Word as they grow in the knowledge of who Christ is, and as they start eating meat and they start going into the deeper things of who we are to be. And make no mistake about it, the meat isn't the things that are unseen or unknown. The meat of the Word is taking the Word and doing the Word. That, that's the hardest thing that a Christian does, and that, again, a sure sign of maturity. But to see this person grow and to flourish in their Christian lives is just as joyous. And so each person, we need to take the time. At some moment, beginning of the year is good when we make evaluations. Am I growing in my relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? And so immaturity, well, a new believer, there's that immaturity, but there's also that passion. But what happens when that immaturity never really grows to maturity and then the passion leaves? And then all of a sudden we have somebody, well, there's no real outward expression of what Christ has done in their hearts. There's no confidence that you are a child of God. Maybe you'll say the words, maybe you think the words, but deep inside you're convicted by the Holy Spirit and there's just no peace there. There's just no understanding and disobedience well, again, in disobedience, there's never any kind of surety in disobedience. And, and so there's that immaturity, but that passion in a new believer. And, and, and really the, the challenge is, is for all of us, especially those who've been saved for 10, 20, 30 years, whatever it might be, is to keep that passion burning, to continue to burn for the Lord. Because again, I can remember when we first got saved and just how exciting all of this new stuff was. And, and it's these things that the, my religious past was always pointing towards. And then to come to that realization that now I've got an understanding of what it means to have a relationship with God and to push forward in that relationship with God and the Lord placed upon myself and my wife to grow in that knowledge. We haven't lived perfect lives since. Matter of fact, we've failed many times, but the grace of the Lord prevails. He prevails, and he makes up for those hard times and difficult days. But an unnatural phenomena within the church is when a 20-year-old Christian acts like a 2-year-old unbeliever. And it's then that you see something that is also sad and ought to never be. And so church is not meant just for us to abide our time until Christ calls us home, but it needs to be a learning center for the purpose of sending us out. It needs to be boot camp. It needs to be call, whatever, however it is that you want to define it, that God sends us out from here and we do that work as we go into simply our normal lives. Not asking anybody to be Billy Graham or Greg Laurie or anybody along those lines, but just to be able to, and we'll look at this and, and uh, possibly next week, I guess, 
uh, next time we get together. But just to be able to give, I'll read it, verse 15. But sanctify the Lord in your hearts. Set aside the Lord in your hearts. How do you sanctify or set aside the Lord in your heart? It's through prayer and through word and through fellowship. And it says, and always, for every moment of your life, be ready, are you? Are you ready? To give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and in fear, in a humble manner. Nowhere in the Bible does it say to argue people. We do debate, but not debate as it's defined today, but just to be able to give that reason for the hope that is within us. And so, are you prepared for that? I look at the people that are, go out door to door, and they're not always prepared to give that exact answer at that moment, but they have a heart, and God brings to remembrance the things that are necessary to stay, say at that moment. But I see the greatest fear in doing that or sharing your faith, whatever it might be, is what if they say something and I can't give a response? Or what if I come to a dead end and I don't know what to say? Hey, I don't always know what to say. Uh, sometimes it's going to be, you know what? I'm going to have to check on that. Somebody asked me something even this past week, and I don't remember what it was. But I told them, you know what? I'm going to have to go and, and, and check. And that was a definition of a word. I'm going to have to go and, and, and check up on that because I didn't know. I'm ready to give a reason for the hope that is within me, but there's going to be times when I'm confronted or challenged or whatever it might be, and I may not know everything, and that's okay. Matter of fact, it's the people who think they know everything that aren't okay. They're usually the ones who are deterrent to the word of God, but we are to be submitted to the word of God and growing in the knowledge of the Lord. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11, Paul said, when I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, or he's saying when I became mature, I put away childish things. It's time for the church to put away childish things. It's time for us to grow. If we really believe in this, if we're truly born-again believers, it's time for us to get into the game because we see society and we see the evilness of society. We see the hard-heartedness of society. Every, every week, it's some other mass murder, whatever it might be that, that's going on. Political arena, these people that we elect into offices and expect them to be our saviors, by now I think we can come to the conclusion, ain't going to happen. Matter of fact, they're more of a detriment to that than they are a betterment for that. No, it's all about the church being mobilized going forth and with the mindset of making disciples, of representing Christ, dying to ourselves, allowing wrong even to be done to us so that we do not close the door for the opportunity to share. So now we come to Peter's point in our section of Scripture today. You need to come to maturity of a Christian reality. Just as a child needs to mature and go off into the cold, cruel world, the church needs to mature because the cold, cruel world is coming to you. God's intent is us to go, but it's as we go that God brings the opportunity to us. We need to see those opportunities as ordained by God. And again, you look out there, there's people, they're going to hell, and they're going to hell daily. And I, I can't keep anybody out of hell, but I do know what I'm supposed to do as to do my part. Now, the problem in the church, too, is we can go out there and be the religious police. We can start telling people what they should be doing and they shouldn't be doing, and that's not what God has called us to do. God has called us to go out and to preach the gospel. As we go out and preach the gospel, that's the power of God unto salvation, 
And so we can come up with our rules and our regulations and all these and try and impose them on unbelievers, which is just really silly. Or we can just simply go out and to preach the word. It's exactly what Peter is doing in this section of Scripture. Peter is a man of the word. He has found the value of it. Because what was he always doing in the gospel? He was speaking from the resources of Peter. And he was always saying something silly or something foolish. But now we see, starting in the book of Acts and even through into his epistles, he's a man of the word. In in verses 10 through 12, he's speaking from Psalm 34 and 37. In verse 14... It says, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And you can equate that back to Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. He was there when the Lord said those things. And then the last part of verse 14, he's quoting Isaiah chapter 8, verses 11 through 15. Peter is a man of the word. When he wants to teach his lesson, when he wants to get his point across, he goes to the scriptures. And so Peter starts out, as most pastors do, finally... Usually when I say finally, that means there's about 20 more minutes left. We're about halfway done. And right now we're about at the halfway, maybe a little bit point in his epistle. Finally, and I have to imagine as Peter's going through those seasons of suffering that we had looked at in the past weeks, he's finally, well, what is the purpose of all of that? God doesn't want you to suffer just to suffer. God's got a plan for our suffering. We were called to suffering just as truly as Christ was called to suffer. We're going to suffer the effects of being part of this sinful world. That's a reality. Hard things are going to happen. Bad things are going to happen. But all those things that happen are going to work together for God's good. But again, that's just simply a reality that we need to even embrace. And so Peter understands this because, remember, he's in Rome writing to Asia Minor because of the persecution that has started in Rome. He understands that it's going to be going in the direction of these churches that he is writing to, so he's preparing them for that. And so since verse 11 of chapter 2, Peter has been preparing the church to get into the game. When I played high school football... I went through all of the off-season preparation and conditioning. We did so right when the season ended. In my junior year, I, or well, actually my sophomore year, I went through the spring training, summer before my junior year. Every morning we'd get up at 6 o'clock and we'd run out. And I was, lived in Brea, went to Brea Linda High School. We'd run out into the Brea oil fields, up and down hills and the whole thing, and preparation for the football season. I learned my position and all of the plays associated with my position. But when game time came, I was on the sidelines. I was not prepared. Who laughed? Somebody laughed over there. That was Birdie laughed. <laughs> I sat on the bench, all dressed up and nowhere to go. I had the knowledge, but the problem was I, I couldn't get into the game. I wanted to get into the game, but I was ill-prepared for the game at that time. And part of what I think was happening, you know, well, God uses things like that, is to develop a desire and a passion to even be better prepared. And so I just made the decision, I'm going to give it even more the next off-season, and so I did. My senior year, I was ready, I was more mature, I was better skilled and more knowledgeable, and I got into the game. And so the Christian life, are are we in the game? Because there was guys that were really good in high school, but because of their attitude or whatever it might have been, or violating the rules, they weren't allowed to play in the game. I remember two guys got caught smoking and got kicked off the team. They violated, that was very clear what would happen, but they didn't care. And they didn't care, and so they were just cast aside. 
And how many a times do you see people who are just figuratively cast aside because they're not wanting to play by the rules. They're not wanting to get in the game. They have no passion to, 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 to be obedient to the calling that God has placed upon their, their heart. And I remember just before the first game, just before we ran out to play the game, the coach would always give us a final instructions. And that's what Peter is doing here. Final instructions and submission to suffering. And we're going to look at it in three parts over the next few weeks. First, we're going to be looking at teamwork in verses 8 through 12 today. Secondly, to have a prepared conscience, verses 13 through 17. And then thirdly, price paid for glory, verses 18 through 22. Now, our foundational reference point is going to be the church today, will be the church and relationships with in the church. Because if you can't get along in here, you're not going to get along out there. Mark chapter 3, verse 25. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. What Peter is presenting here are elements of a team that has reached a level of maturity and is ready to enter into the game. They're ready to do battle. With the result being verse 3, I'm sorry, chapter 3, verse 10, a love for life and good days. So, you consider yourself here a mature Christian, a mature believer whose maturity level matches your spiritual age. Whose maturity level matches your spiritual age. Do you believe you're where you should be based upon the day of your salvation and how long ago that was? Well, we have a few things that we're able to dig in and to find the answer to that. First of all, number one, are you one-minded in the body of Christ? Look at verse 8. Finally, all of you, that means you, it means all of us. Finally, all of you, be of one mind. I think he says all of you because we can so easily separate ourselves from commands in the Bible or things that we consider to be unpleasant or things that we just don't necessarily agree with or want to do. But he says all of you, be one-minded. This is to think the same, to maintain harmony through a common commitment to God's word. Romans chapter 12, verse 5, So we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Paul uses that illustration in 1 Corinthians that we are all to be of the same body. I pointed this out many times. I just happen to be the mouth. Some, uh, somebody else here is, is, is the hand, the arm, the foot, the little toenail, whatever it might be. But everything is significant. Because have you ever had your little toenail... Have you ever cut it just too short? I'm not even talking about having it pulled out, which would really hurt. Yeah, I know Sal. Sal, that is pulled out. <laughs> He's raising it. I have. <laughs> but just to cut it too short, I, I mean, it bothers you the rest of the day. And, and we need to look at the totality of the body of Christ and value every member of this church the same. God does not love the pastor more than he loves the little toenail person or whatever it else might be that you are. We can so easily put the person behind the pulpit on a pedestal, but that's not what we're supposed to do. We're to be looking to the Lord Jesus Christ. That being the case, Christ is the integral one in this body. He's the brain, if you will. And then all of us, we do our part so that we have a fully functioning body able to achieve the will that God has for us. And so... 
we being many are one body in Christ, individually members of one another. You just heard worship. I was back there getting my mic on and everything. And I told Charles, who does the sound, I go, man, sound sounds really good. You know why? Because they were all playing the same chords. Even more than that, they were all singing the same song. Second song that we sang, King of Glory. All the people that were singing sang King of Glory. Now with the instrumental people were playing Strangers in the Night. You would think, what in the world is going on over there? But they all had their sheet music and, and all of these things, and they were all on the same page. And what did it do? It fostered a spirit of worship. Now, if you brought me up there and I started singing, you'd, think, you'd be thinking, Pastor Mike doesn't sing very well. You wouldn't be thinking of Jesus. You would be thinking, we need to get somebody to get him off the stage. And it would be a distraction to be counterproductive to what God wants to see happen. Best biblical illustration? Turn over to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. We studied this in 2009. I looked that up too. The beginning of the church, and the church is firing on all cylinders. There's unity within the body, and the church is growing and thriving. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and in prayers. Breaking of bread so many times has been equated to communion, but really what that is, it's fellowship. There's the apostles' doctrine. That, that, that speaks of the doctrine of, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, breaking of bread, that's coming together for intimacy in a meal, and in prayers. What was the result? Verse 43. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Because they did that, those simple things that we're called to do, amazing things happen. Because man did his simple things in obedience, God did the supernatural through that. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together, there's this unity, and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And what did God do? And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Now, there was a unity that went a little bit beyond what God desired because in the next few chapters, he's going to bring hardship into the church. There's going to be persecution and they're going to be dispersed throughout all the world. But there was this time necessary first for them to grow to maturity so that they would minister to one another and see the value within the body of Christ, but the reality of Jesus Christ as well. And they were going to take that knowledge and take it and change the world. And so they did. They set out, not only through the known world, but also throughout the ages, even through to Calvary Chapel, Ontario today. And this is based upon, obviously, the Lord, but the obedience of people as they're single-minded. What does the immature do? Well, what does your kid do? Your kid just is concerned about me and mine. We have a two-year-old grandson, and he's just, you know, he gets a banana. You ask him for a bite of the banana, it turns away from you. Give him ice cream, and they're venomous. Well, no, that's me. But nonetheless, 
you just see they're concerned about themselves and protecting their own little situation, their own little world. So do you consider yourself a mature Christian whose maturity level matches your spiritual age? Well, again, are you one-minded with the body of Christ? Number two, are you a mature Christian? Are you compassionate? Are you compassionate? Finally, verse 8, finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. And you know what? I, I get a good view of this as well as being a pastor, and I have seen compassion in this church. And it's just really, it's truly a blessing. Now, the context here is to be sympathetic towards those of the body of Christ as they're going through the difficult days. And so, again, Peter is writing to those who are about to go through some pretty major trials. Be one-minded in the midst of that. Be compassionate towards one another in the midst of that. This is a heart that desires to support one another, that sees a person down and desires to lift them up, not rejoicing to lift yourself up in what they're going through, but to humble yourself, come alongside, and to see them lifted up in their Christian life. That's why we're told by the writers of Hebrews not to forsake the gathering together of the brethren. You should come into the church and you should be built up. Now, a lot of people make it pretty hard to do that because they're pretty quick come in after worship starts and they'll run in and then when church is over as that last song is playing they'll run out and I've had people say not one person talked to me when well, we couldn't catch you to talk to you and and so that that's the reason that we have again the donuts out there and the coffee out there the coffee bar out there that's the reason we have tables out there and all of this that it would foster fellowship and, and if you're a mature believer and especially if you're a member of this church Remember to step outside of yourself. Maybe it's uncomfortable, but to see somebody who you don't recognize or maybe here for the first time and to talk to them because some people, they just need human touch as well. And again, that's God through the Spirit working through you. Just conversation. Why? Because we don't know what people are going through. And so this is the Lord's desire, but unfortunately there can be so much division within the body of Christ and we can so easily lose our compassion. If you're not one-minded, you will never be compassionate. I remember my mother yelling like a banshee. I don't really know what a banshee is. I think it's an Indian. I don't know if that's politically correct anymore. Can't you kids just all get along? And we would drive the poor woman just completely insane. But again, we were immature and we were being kids. And we grow into this. Now, my mother, we went golfing. Myself and my two brothers went golfing. And you should have just seen my mother's heart just light up that we were doing something together and getting along and all of that. It was a good thing. And in that, it just reminded me of the joy that the Lord has in us as we are getting along, as we're moving forward, as we're unified in Christ and who he has called us to be. A sign of my children's maturity is when they become compassionate towards one another. And I've seen that. And I can remember even at an early age, Jamie and Kelly. Jamie and Kelly are twins. I don't remember how old they were. Probably somewhere around five years old or whatever. And one of them, I think it was Jamie, got a splinter. And I remember my dad, when we get a splinter, he just loved digging splinters out. And I can remember thinking, okay, it's my turn now. And I remember I picked her up and put her in the counter, and her twin was right there. I go, let me see. He goes, no, no. I go, let me see it. And so I got her finger, and I pick it, you know, and you kind of hit a splinter. It's like, ah! And, she, yeah. and then I look down, and the other one is just crying her eyes out because I'm torturing her sister. But I did get the thrill of pulling the splinter out. 
But even my wife, you know, we both notices the compassion that they had for one another. Are, are we that compassionate with one another when somebody here gets a splinter of life, whatever that might be? Or they're getting it pulled out as they're going through a hard time and God's doing a work in their life? Compassion is to be expressed in prayer. Compassion, it's to be expressed in fellowship and, and, and just expressing not just prayer, but also that you care. Because again, that's what we so, that's how God has created us and that's what we desire. In Romans chapter 12, verse 15, we are to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Compassion, it's a compound word. It means common passion. Instead of compassion, though, we can so exhibit competition. And it's competition within the body of Christ that really kills. Because usually competition involves somebody winning and somebody losing. I enjoy competition and it's right context. I, I, I enjoy it a lot. But in the body of Christ, it ought not to be. There ought not to be any compassion. I'm sorry. Well, let me rephrase that. Any competition in here. There's supposed to be compassion. But competition, competition, it's a mutual strife for the same object. And, and I've seen competition within the body of Christ or people trying to protect position or whatever it might be. And again, it's just an ugly thing that causes division. Thirdly, are you a mature Christian? Well, do you possess a brotherly love for one another? Again, verse 8, Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers. This is the love that exists between family members. It's a point that Peter has been pointing out since we started in this epistle, and it will work its way all the way through to the end. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, Since you have purified your souls in the obeying of the truth through the Spirit, in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. Chapter 2, verse 17, Honor all people, love the brotherhood. Chapter 4, Verse 8, and above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. And then chapter 5, verse 14, greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. We don't kiss here at this church. We hug, but nonetheless, you get the point. We are to have a love for one another. The mutual I'm sorry, the mature realize that we are all of one family because we have all entered into the family the same way. We have all been adopted by grace through faith. What does the immature do? They think they're the special ones who stand out above all others. Again, you can see that in an immature child, very territorial, possessive, and demanding. Unfortunately, there can be people in the body of Christ who are like that as well. Fourthly, are you a mature Christian? Are you tender-hearted? Again, verse 8, finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, and be tender-hearted. I like that word tender-hearted because what it means, it means be kind-bowled. Do you have kind bowels? <laughs> back then, you know, when they would fight, they would fight with swords. They didn't do operations back then. They just didn't have any clue. And so on the battlefield, if you would cut somebody, their bowels would come out. And so the idea is, is that's their inner. So you kindness with inside of you. That, that's the idea here, to be tender-hearted. That kindness would reside within you. You can feel sorry for someone, or you can be deeply affected by the pain of someone. 
just to be sorry for someone does them absolutely no good, but to be deeply affected by the pain others are suffering, that will bring you to action. And that will see that they are ministered to and their needs are taken care of. I've never seen a need within our church that people, when made aware of it, have not risen to the occasion. We just had that opportunity at Mercy House as they ministered to the homeless when we had our blanket slash sleeping bag drive. They had a... um, Christmas celebration. It was the Thursday, I believe, before Christmas. And I I wasn't there, but my wife and Andy brought the the stuff over there. And they were just so excited to be able to have that and and to be able to give that and to be able to minister. That's why we have on the bulletin as far as the... uh, um, gift certificates for food and the gift certificates for housing because they're able to minister to people who are who are hurting and where does that come from it comes from a first a realization of what god and christ jesus has done for us because we can be so quick to point the finger and say well they don't deserve it and what we do we do that in order to blow off any responsibility that we think that we might have but yeah what does anybody here deserve i i don't deserve to be here Nobody deserves anything in the kingdom of God. It's all about God's grace. And just as God in Christ Jesus was gracious to us, we need to exhibit that grace to others because never are we reflecting the nature of who Jesus Christ is and when we're being gracious not only to one another but people outside of the body of Christ. And so th- this mindset of, of self, it doesn't fly in the church. We must be tender-hearted. You can feel sorry for somebody or you can feel deeply affected by their pain. And it's that deep affection that we have for their pain that will cause us to a state of action. Think of it this way. The next time you go to a restaurant and receive less than favorable or adequate service from your waitress, do you ever consider that woman and who that woman is? First of all, do you consider that she's a woman, I mean, a human being? You know, she's she's just not a robot put there for your pleasure. This is a living human being, a living human being that goes through everything that we go through. And as she's there, maybe she's just suffered a loss of a family member. Maybe she's working two to three jobs. Maybe she has children to care for and she can't be with them. Maybe there's something going on in her life. So you've got to learn to evaluate people and ask the Lord to give you insight into what's going on. But maybe it's not just bad service. Maybe it's distracted service. And the thing that is distracting them is overwhelming them in their life. And maybe God has brought you in there in order to minister to them instead of complain about them or insult them by not giving that tip that maybe they're using to to remedy. God wanted to use to remedy a problem. It's probably extreme, but there's a lot of people out there going through extreme things. There's a lot of people out there that are suffering. That's who Peter's writing the epistle to, people that are going to be in that environment. And we are in that environment. How are we doing as far as maturity and reflecting Christ to those who are of this world? A tender-hearted person considers things before acting out. And unfortunately, I can so do that as well. I mean, we can just so quickly act in the flesh, but that's not what God has called us to do. He's called us to consider the Spirit. First Thessalonians 2.8, So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you have become dear to us. So, maturity. Maybe you've looked at these points and determined you're doing very well. 
you're the poster child for Christian maturity. Maybe Pastor Mike should have had me stand up there and teach this lesson. Well, if you're a mature Christian, you won't have that attitude. Because again, verse 8, Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous. A better word there, be humble. Be humble. Because we all know people in our lives who are arrogant. And it's an arrogant person that we don't really like being around. It's an arrogant person that, oh, here comes so-and-so again, going to have to listen about, you know, whatever it might be. I don't want to be that kind of a person. Because what am I doing? I'm doing the same thing. By my arrogance, I would be doing the same thing that Peter did in the Garden of Gethsemane. We looked at it last Thursday, cutting ears off. And as we cut people's ears off, and what I mean by this is, then they no longer have an ear to hear what the Spirit has to say to them. Peter, as he cut off this man Malchus's ear, what is he doing? He's rendering him ineffective to hear the gospel. Peter should have been speaking the gospel rather than acting forth in the flesh. And we need to consider that as well. As I'm contrary to these things, as I'm not one-minded, as I'm not compassionate, if I have no brotherly love and I'm not kind-bowled, then probably because I'm not humble. I think more of myself than I really should. If you are not humble, then you are not a mature Christian. If you believe that you are humble, then you're probably not mature either. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. When you believe that you've arrived at the point of humility, you still have a long, long way to go. It's that which we need to strive for throughout our Christian lives, knowing that we'll never obtain until we are in the presence of Jesus Christ. But it's in the striving that God blesses. It's in putting forth the effort that God enables us. What does the immature do? They seek an identity other than Christ, usually identity that is based upon their own. In 1 Corinthians 4, 7, for what makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you have not received it? We receive salvation. That should humble me. The love that God has for me should, should humble me. The blessings that he has given me should humble me. And again, understanding that all good things have come from God and of myself. Well, before I was saved, what came of myself? Nothing that was of anybody's benefits, either mine or others. What is the response of a humble Christian when struck? Well, what comes out of you is what is in you. If you're full of yourself, then that's what's going to spill out. If you're filled with the Spirit, then that will spill out. Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous. Not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this that you may inherit a blessing. You are called, this is God's will for your life. For he who would love life and see good days, that's an Old Testament blessing, let him refrain, refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Peter's final instructions he's moving into 
upon entering into trial. Father, I just pray that we would be of the mindset that as we leave this place, we're going out into the world. And Lord, just the elements of maturity that we looked at today, Lord, we see these reflected in you and that you are the personification of all of these things. And Lord, you came into this world when it was at a very dark, it was a very dark place. And you did so, Lord, that you would shine light. And Lord, that light has shone for the past 2,000 years. We just celebrated the day that light came in. And I pray, Father, that we would realize and understand, even as we had our candlelight service, that we're not to hide our light under a basket, but we are to let it shine. And our light is just simply a reflection of your glory into this world. And so, Lord, may this mindset be in us that was in you, that we would truly be a people, Lord, who grow to maturity for the purpose, Lord, of a biblical example. And so, Father, I just lift up the believer today. Once again, we live at this time of the year where we make resolutions. I pray, Father, that the resolutions that are made in the Christian lives of the people here today will be built upon the things that we have looked at in your word. But, Father, we have an advantage. The majority of the resolutions we make or we try to fulfill in the flesh and we fail. But, Lord, this is that which the Spirit will enable us. Give us a willing mind Give us a heart that is passionate for these things. And Father, I just pray in this coming year that you would use us in glorious ways, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We all stand, please. Tonight, we're going to be continuing our verse-by-verse study through the book of 2 Chronicles. We're arriving at a place that is well known, 2 Chronicles chapter 7. That contains verse 14, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and seek my face. And we'll see the context in which that is presented and what it means for us even today. High school retreat is coming up. It's towards the end of the month, but nonetheless, continue to keep it up in prayer. If you have a high schooler, you can still sign them up. We're having a Valentine's banquet. We're moving forward in the things that we do this time of the year and just keep us in prayer that we wouldn't do things just because it's this time of the year, but we would stay connected to our first love, seeking to glorify God through all that we do. We'll have a couple up here for prayer. I'll be in the back. God bless you guys. As we sing this last song, may it be more than just a song, but you reaching out to just surrender to what we've heard today and how God's spoken to you.
Amen. God bless you.